Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. We have a really good one for you today. We have Alex Newman, who is the founder and CEO of the Newman Consulting Group, which is a sales coaching and consulting company that helps tech companies grow revenue and build high-performance sales teams. They help startups get traction with their first customers and help growth companies build repeatable revenue-producing playbooks. Alex has been the co-founder and CEO at Finance Fuel, the COO at Storefront, founder and CRO at Tech Day and VP of sales at Pivot Desk, just to name a few. So he has plenty of sales insights to share with us. And without further ado, let's dive in and hear him. Welcome to the show, Alex. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, happy, to, happy to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks, man. You have a great story, like a sales story in terms of you know, the, the work with startups and how you, how you got into sales and into into sales leadership. So just for listeners, can you give a little a little background on on how you got into sales and management? Yeah, so um I mean I started off in sales uh doing cucko cucko knives, so door to door and and appointments and, and did that for a couple of years for college. Came out, went through Wells Fargo, did the whole business banking route and I had five bosses at one time and I just was like life is too short, this is not for me and I left and I joined the startup world was really interested in tech. Went to a company as a sales rep. It was a telecom startup in, in Denver and kind of worked my way up. Addition by subtraction. So people started quitting. And so I started work, moving my way up inside of this small little startup. Ended up uh, going back to grad school. Always wanted to go to grad school. Went to CU Boulder. And um, I needed to get an internship in between the two years. And a mentor friend of mine said, you should check out my friend's company. He just started it like weeks ago. It was called Pivot Desk. It's, uh, it's like Airbnb for office space. And I said, cool, what the hell is Airbnb? <laughs> so I, uh, I did my research, loved uh, commercial real estate before I was in telecommunications. And I worked with a lot of commercial real estate brokers for leads. It was kind of a crossroads of technology real estate. So I jumped into that. And it was from the very, very beginning that I was a salesperson and I just kind of started creating everything and ended up becoming the manager and VP of sales and kind of worked my way up and figured out what I needed to figure out and, you know, found mentors for myself, help where I needed. And Techstars was really good for kind of a launch point as well. We went through that and, and found some great mentors. So kind of got a crash course in sales leadership, made probably every mistake that a person can make learned a lot. And, um, you know, luckily enough, we had enough money that I was able to, to scale it pretty good and, and have gone on to, to do a lot of sales coaching and consulting and turnaround and acceleration, all kinds of different things. That's awesome. The Cutco, I mean, that's sales fundamentals. 
I've done some door-to-door, I've managed some door-to-door sales teams. And how did what you learned in, in sales fundamentals in that environment carry over into the tech space? I would say that it's where I was lucky enough that I got to make every single mistake from a sales rep's point of view at a very young age so that I got the learning right away. I have a very much of a never quit mentality and I'm kind of obsessed with figuring it out. So when I started Cubco, it was $15 per appointment. And I knew that I had a great work ethic and I figured I didn't really care if I sold anything. It was just go out, do the appointments and you make money. And I figured I could do X amount of appointments every single week and then I can make some good money. One of the things that I learned really quick is if you don't sell anything, your boss is probably going to get mad and want to let you go. So I did one of the, I don't know, I did 100 or so appointments and I sold like $100 or something. It was insane. And I vividly remember my manager saying like, bringing me into his office. He's like, I've never seen in the history of this company, anyone do this many appointments and not sell anything. (laughs) And he was like, I got to let you go. Like, you're just not good. And I uh, kind of begged for my job and begged for help, and begged for me to stay. And he, he gave me another chance. And that's where I got a crash course in, in true sales. When I actually started selling, it was, I wasn't following a process. I wasn't listening to the customer. I was doing kind of what I wanted. The places that I was insecure about, asking for the order, talking about price, I just stop doing. It was almost like I gave this presentation. And right when I was about ready to do the ask, I just close shop and say, thank you very much and and walk out the door. So I learned really, really quick. You have to follow the process. You have to be disciplined. You have to go for the close. You have to ask. You can't just assume that they know that what they're going to, that they're going to buy or that they know what's going to happen. You have to be able to tie the actual pain to your customer. I remember that used to be able to like cut a penny and cut a rope and cut all these like materials. Well, people don't use kitchen knives to cut rope and pennies and these different things. So being able to bring, uh, you know, some type of fruit or vegetable or something that they could cut really just kind of put the use case in their mind, whether it was, you know, cutting bread or tomato or whatever it is. So it just, it really set me off on the right track after making a lot of mistakes. And then it got to the point where I was doing appointments and I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I sell on every appointment? How do I sell bigger deals and increase your average order size? And that's when I started really digging in. And this is all in Cutco about how to upsell, how to ask for the order and then continue to push, how to really tie in what the people are talking about. So your buyers ask them, for example, how do they cook? What do they cook? And really tying in the use cases to what they do into what you're selling. And that's one of the things that have, has kind of stuck with me throughout all these years is, you know, you really want to ask the questions up front, do your discovery correctly, and your close rates will actually skyrocket. If you just focus on you and talk about you in the beginning and how great you are and how great your product is and your company is, so what? Nobody cares what you do. They care why you do it. And when you can tell it in a story format, it's just like a movie trailer. People buy into that. They're attracted to that story. They want to hear what the rest of the story is. They want to hear what the ending is. I mean, think of a bad movie that you watched and you sat through just so you could see what was going to happen at the end. And you knew what was going to happen at the end. You just wanted to see it. It's the same idea. It's that attraction to the story. 
works really, really well, whether you're in SMB sales or marketplace or enterprise, whatever it is, like when you have their attention and you bought into that pain, like you can guide them to purchase. You don't have to convince them to do it. It's interesting. The, when I think of like that, the Cutco model, and I sometimes think of it as that was before digital marketing, right? Like that was sales was marketing. I'm going to knock on your door. You may not have been unaware. You know, I mean, you, some TV ads, things like that, but for all intents and purposes, like that last mile marketing was the sales team. You mentioned the process is the sales process from a model like that just completely fundamentally different than, you know, what you see in tech companies that probably do a better job of getting the customer further along before they talk to the sales team? No, the quick answer is no. I would say that the model has changed a lot due to the amount of information that's available. So a lot of the questions where were a lot of what you would Google today, that you would try to educate, like buyers would educate themselves. I look at things in a buyer's process. So I have this problem, I'm thinking about it, or I'm trying to think of this use case all the way to what does the actual purchase and, and kind of decision committee look like. Back then, I mean, it was, you had nothing. You had no information. You really had whatever the sales rep was kind of telling you, or maybe some of the advertisements, or maybe your own personal experience. So there wasn't nearly as much outside information that could influence, but it didn't change the way that like your tone, your confidence, did you come off as salesy or creepy? Did you come off as educated? Like those things, like those things don't change. And instead of trying to just jump steps and saying, Hey, I, you know, I work at Cutco. Here's the knife. You want to buy it? It's walking them through this buying process about seeing themselves use it, putting it in their hands, talking about their use. Like what talking is a, a week look like for cooking with the family? And all of a sudden they're saying, Well, how much does this cost? Versus, are you ready to buy this? And so when you stop focusing on trying to convince somebody to sell something and just start from trying to figure out what the pain is and just latching onto that pain and guiding them to understand how they can solve that pain, I don't think anything's really changed. Has the order changed and the speed that you kind of go through some of the steps? Sure. But I, I think, you know, an educational sale and being confident in the products that you're selling and confident in the solution, solving that pain. I don't think that's changed. And creepy as a salesperson is bad, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. I, I, I think that, <laughs> yes, yes, that would be a big old yes. It's universal. Yes. The MBA, I wanted to ask you because there's, especially in the entrepreneurial community and, and in the startup community, there's this, you know, an MBA is not necessarily worth it. And I'm just curious your your opinion. You wanted to go back. You yeah. you did. How valuable or not has it been in getting you where you are today? I went back mainly because both of my parents have graduate degrees and it's just something that I've always wanted. And then from that decision, I decided what did I want to get out of it. I knew at the time, having come out of the corporate world, working in a little bit of the startup world, that that big corporate world was just not for me. And so I knew that I didn't want to go to this Ivy League school to be able to get this corporate job that made all of this money. I, I knew that that just was not for me. I was planning on going to California for school and I was living in Colorado. I'd actually, weird, I was living in Denver. I'd never been to Boulder. 
which is like 45 minutes away. And I finally had a friend tell me, yo, drive up here, talk to me. Let's walk around the campus, learn about what this school is about. And I fell in love. And it really came down to, I knew I wanted to be in entrepreneurship. Uh, my family in general is are, are big entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I've always learned is you just bet on yourself. My uncle always said, if you learn how to sell, you'll never go hungry. And I took that to heart. He built his own companies and it's his work ethic. And it's just, you know, there's no quick fixes. There's no shortcuts. Like you got to put in the work, whether you put in the work now or you put in the work later, you still got to put in the work. It's just kind of when you choose to do it. And I didn't, well, I didn't have the money to go to some of these big schools. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the loans and the things like that, that I wanted to kind of take on the debt. And I kind of looked at it and said, Hey, I want to bet on myself with the sole notion that I knew I was going back to school for the network. I was lucky enough that Boulder has Techstars and Foundry Group and a phenomenal kind of early stage tech community. And that's kind of more luck for me because I didn't know that's what I wanted right away versus going out to, say, a Silicon Valley or going out into Boston and MIT and that kind of area or New York. So I got lucky a little bit on the entrepreneurship front tech-wise, but not entrepreneurship-wise. And I had a great network. People are super nice. Everybody in Boulder is rah-rah, sometimes a little bit too rah-rah, but they're very open. They're very helpful. It's a great place to really build a company. And for that, like the, the network that I built was fantastic. And so my MBA did what it was supposed to do. I got an MBA in finance and venture capital. And one of my mentors and teachers was Jason Mendelson at Foundry Group. So I, I got, I guess, doubly lucky that way. But you know, I would recommend an MBA if you actually understand what, what it's supposed to do for you. Like It is a tool, and I would use it as a tool to get to what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good answer. When I was considering going back to get my, my MBA, my mentor at the time said, you go back for three reasons. Like an MBA, there's, there's the network, there's the actual learning, you know, in the curriculum, and then there's the initials, you know, you, you have an MBA. And if you want one of the three, it's probably going to cost less. If you want all of the three, it's probably going to cost more. But, you know, just understanding what is it you want out of this? Why are you pursuing this? And then, you know, go accordingly. Yeah, I mean, I, I I did finance in undergrad, so I wasn't about to go back to MBA school and go, ah, well, you know what? There's there's twelve financial statements. Like that. <laughs> I assumed that wasn't going to happen, so I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. I mean, it's a it's a nice refresher. The time that you have, and I went full time. I didn't do like an evening program. The time that it takes to figure out what you wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to stay in sales. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I mean, I was. I went to events in the natural space and green. I went in oil and gas. I mean, I, I was in, in CPG. I was all over the map and I kind of gravitated towards tech because that's where really just my passion was. And my action spoke louder than what I said. And I noticed I was constantly going to events. And I just, I had a really, really great time with it. And I used it as a tool. I used it as the ability to say, hey, I have a little bit of a reset. I think I was. 27, 28, something like that when I went back and it, and it did what it was supposed to do for me. At the time of my life and the stage of my career and what I was trying to accomplish, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Right now, I think people are using it for some good reasons, some bad reasons. I think you should be asking yourself, like, at the end of this, what am I trying to achieve? 
And then you should be able to decide, is it right for you, school, all that. Yeah. Begin with the end in mind. Absolutely. So you've, you, you sold yourself back into Cutco, you know, and then you, you stayed in sales, you did well in sales and, and you said you ended up becoming manager. What was the story? Your first, your first management role? Like what, how did that, how did that evolve? So it evolved because the manager quit and moved to a different state and there was nobody else left. And I was the only person that actually understood how to make sales. I kind of got it by default. <laughs> we had a couple other reps and I love the go get more reps. That was a, a task that I had. So what is recruiting and hiring? I'd never done it before. And it was just interesting. I mean, I, um, I've learned a lot. So I used to be a, a phenomenal sales rep and I knew how to sell. I know how to sell. I'm very good at it. But the place that I really struggled with was, could I articulate what it is that I did in order to teach somebody else how to do it? And it's not that my way is the only way, which of course, when I was younger, that's what I thought. But I couldn't even articulate what it is that I did in order to teach somebody else. And it was always a, just watch what I do, get out of my way, but watch what I do and learn. And I would, I used to say this phrase religiously, which is funny because I never, I never say it is, it used to come down to, I don't understand why you don't understand. I couldn't understand why after watching me do, do what I do, you couldn't figure it out. Or if I told you that one, one time, you couldn't figure it out. And fell pretty hard on my face, had some pretty intense conversations with a lot of different reps as well as, as well as the owner. And I learned and I, and I studied and I read books and I, you know, that's when DIN was coming out more and content marketing was coming a bigger thing and started to find some mentors. And I learned about tech stars and I learned about all these different types of places where you can actually self-educate yourself, self-coach yourself. And again, it kind of comes back to the same similar understanding. It was this never quit mentality. And I knew I wanted to build my own company. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I knew I needed to learn those skills. And being a, a manager and being a leader is completely different than being a salesman. Some of the same soft skills are still there, of course, but being a manager is not about you. It's about them and helping them sell more. I remember very, very first Techstars mentor that I ever spoke to was Keenan way, way, way back many years ago. And I remember one of the things that he told me was like, realize that as the sales leader, your job is simply to help them sell more. I mean, he said a million other things with it, but he said, they're going to sell whether you're there or not. Your job is to help them sell more. And so I took that to heart and I've learned a lot of different ways to really articulate it and learn and listen. And then kind of, you know, you find your different places. And then obviously the data and the metrics and all that tools have, have started to help create insights. But that was, that was a huge learning for me. People just learn in different ways. And following what I specifically do is not the only way to learn. And helping them sell more. The, the word that kind of stands out to me is helping them. You know, the, instead of, you know, there's some, a, a mindset, especially with new managers, that it's to make them sell more. You know, like my job, my job is to make you sell more. And it's really, you know, when you, when you adopt the mindset of I'm here to help you, I clear the blockers, I get you the tools, I help with coaching. 
that's my job is to is to help and support you, not not make you do do something. As soon as you try to tell people what to do, I get it, right? As a manager, as a leader, you, you kind of need your your people to do certain things, but there's the what and then there's the why. And if you can get them to buy into the why they need to do something, especially the how to, like how to do it and how to do it effectively, right? Like, ah, you need to set more meetings and you need to make more calls. Like, okay, like help me understand why. And then help me understand like how to do it. Like get into the trenches and show me. If you were this hotshot sales rep back in your previous life, show me. Show me that you still got it. The times of selling today are much different than they are years ago from like tactical point of view. The process is still the same, but like how you can go about it. At Cutco, we used to do a tell-sell approach. We just tell people what they're going to That doesn't work anymore. Now, I mean, what is consultative selling or, or what is challenger selling? I, I mean, you kind of have a, a flavor and a mix of a lot of these different types of methodologies. And what used to work back in the day doesn't necessarily work. You mentioned that you you went out and kind of learned this intentionally, like deliberately. And you know, I know you you work with some founders this this way too, but we work with with a lot of founders, CEOs that they know their business really well. It's how they started it, it's how they got it to where it is now, but they don't necessarily know sales or marketing. And if they wanted to do a crash course or just go go dive in, if I'm a founder, CEO and I want to go learn sales better right now or sales management what advice or what resources or, or, or what would you recommend? Well, there's a lot of different places. I'd probably avoid a lot of the, the long form course trainings. I would get on LinkedIn. I would look at some of the things on like a Coursera or a Skillshare. Find kind of the people who you vibe with their advice the most. There's a lot of sales advice being thrown out there right now. And I think before you start listening to the advice, I think you just kind of hear what they're saying, understand who they are, understand their backgrounds, seeing kind of what you vibe with and what you don't, and then move forward. You can reach out to people. So I think that it's very flattering when people reach out and say, hey, I think what you're saying is fantastic. Can I take 30 minutes and just get your insights around ABC topic and where you want to go from here? Or what do you think I should do this? this or that. I think get involved on LinkedIn is a, a fantastic way that, that you can really learn. It's kind of like in school when you would take notes, what the teacher was saying. And the more you wrote down, the more you consumed it. But if your friend just gave you their notes, you just, you didn't really get it. It didn't make all the sense. It didn't work the same way. So I think the biggest thing was get in there and you got to start trying it. Whether it's it's courses, like, I mean, I, I have a course that, that people will, will buy and listen to, and that's great. It could be podcasts. I mean, there's a million free podcasts just like this, where you're, you're really just sharing a lot of great knowledge. I think the sales hacker community is fantastic. They feel like they cover and exhaust every possible angle. When you look at somebody like a Kevin Dorsey, who has a, a Patreon group, who's wildly successful, or a Marcus Chan, like these guys... These guys know their stuff and they're really, really like at the pulse of what sales reps are doing and the things that they're dealing with. Learn it right from people who are doing it today versus, you know, reading a book that was probably actually written a year ago, took a while to get published and is more theory based. 
like that was the hardest part for me was taking a book that I'd read and go, how do I actually translate this into my day to day? I know that I took a bunch of like Gary V books and been like, I'm going to copy this word for word. And then it didn't work. <laughs> Pieces of it work, but you need to be able to adapt. And it's, it's okay to ask for help. I feel like sales reps are male, female, young, old, doesn't matter. Like it's okay to ask for help. I mean, how do you translate this? Asking tar- targeted like pinpoint questions versus, hey, can I pick your brain on sales? Like I have no idea where you're going with pick my brain on sales. So I think once that happens, you can start to you figure out who you vibe with, pick on ways that you learn, whether it's audio, with you know, whether it's video, whether it's you know, something that you can download, like you figure out what what works well for you. And and I think the most important piece to it all is push it out into the world, uh, especially as like a technical founder or like a non-business sales type founder. Start with your friends. One of my clients always says, uh, uh, I made my own pitch. I made it so that my grandma can actually understand what I do. And you know, tech can be very complicated at times. If your grandma gets it, you probably simplified it enough for most people to understand. So try with your friendlies and your family and your friends. Like they'll give you real feedback. They're not just going to be like rah rah the whole time as much as you think they will be. Right. And do you same audience if you're you know a, an entrepreneur starting your business because you've mentioned the sales process quite a bit. I know we've talked about that a lot before. When should founders, entrepreneurs, small business owners, when should they start thinking about really formalizing? a sales process or creating sales playbooks at, is there a specific stage you usually advise people to, to start thinking about that? So thinking about it, I'd say from the very beginning, I think that a lot of times you start too late and I'm along the idea of build it as you go with the tools these days. It's really easy to document things as you go, create videos, record calls. So when you understand the process, I mean, in the beginning, it's just a guess. I mean, there's some common sense in there. You can do some research. But when you're just starting out, like, how do people buy? Um, I know that it goes from lead to you know, meeting set to qualified to proposal to you know, close one type of thing. And you just kind of fill in the gaps as you start to learn. And in the beginning, you make mistakes. And that's okay. You can hire people like you and me who can help you try to avoid a lot of those mistakes. There's plenty of business models and processes that are out there that if you have an enterprise sale or an SMB sale or a marketplace type, type business model, there are processes that you can use as a template. And the goal would be to, to confirm and prove, yes, that works. Maybe you need another step. Maybe you need less of a step. But I would document it along the way to say, this is what I did. And I did this next step. And I did this next thing. And while you're doing it, just write it all down on a simple Google Doc or something that makes it really easy. You talk to your clients or your prospects, record the call. My dad always says there's three sides to every story. There's your side, there's their side, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. And when I hear call recordings, I hear the rep say one-on-one, this is what happened. And I listen to the call and I go, this is your version of it because something else happened different. And right then and there, you can improve your own pitch. You can improve your own process. Uh, you can talk about next steps and you're documenting the process along the way. You know, you edit, delete, add a new one. And then 
it's beautiful because as you as you're doing all that, as long as you document it, you literally just created your own onboarding and training plan for any future reps that you do hire, whether they're sales or anybody else in the company. But it all starts back to some type of universally understood process. Because otherwise, you're going to get into some mess where everybody does something different, sells different, says, says different, different steps. And you're fixing issues that you could have proactively solved or avoided, really. Yeah, it's good advice. Like, think about it early. But I mean, there's only so much you can do. You can you can end up overbuilding early on for something that you realize you had to take a right turn at some point and it's no longer applicable. You've wasted a lot of time and money. Yeah, I mean, when I say you start from the beginning, I don't mean that you like down for an hour scheduled on your calendar day in and day out. And say, okay, what's my process for this? And some of it could just be this is, you know, kind of gut instincts and reactions to how to solve something. But if it worked, take three minutes and write it down and say, these are the five things that I did. And this was the result. So that if you have to do it again, go back and see if you tweak it and you get a better result or a worse result. It doesn't have to be this like, overly obsessive thing. But if you just start to document the, the things that you do in the order that you do them, the process is kind of built for you. And it takes a lot of the pressure off yourself in the future, because then you don't have to have this big, like implementation of a new process or every everybody has to change what they were doing, kind of built it from the beginning. And it's just kind of built in from the foundation. Right. I know we share some pretty strong opinions on culture in, in sales organizations. And, you know, I think it's, it can be hard to quantify. I completely get that, but it's undoubtedly contributed to either the great successes that I've, I've been part of or some demises that I've, that I've observed. And you have, I know, I know we, we agree on that, but you, you improved culture in one sales organization so much so that people were withdrawing their resignation letters. I'm just curious, like, can you tell me that, like, that, just that experience? Like, what was, what was going on? How did you identify it? How did you determine what you needed to do and then execute it? Like, what, what is that story? Yeah. So this is a couple of years ago. It was a global company that an investor friend of mine asked me to kind of get involved with. Two companies merged together probably six months before I got involved. And, on paper, they had merged, but in actuality, there was no no merger. They were kind of just jammed together, and everyone there was just a I think it was like a massive email that said, "Hey, we are now one company, and <laughs> go for it." And uh, come into the company, and very similar to you, before I before I do anything, I do like an audit. I just do like a listening tour, and I walk around and I talk to all the different leaders and the different reps and the different employees and all the different departments. And in this case, I was uh, I was the kind of brought in as a COO. And one of the things that we did is just start listening to what people had said. And I think it was the end of the first week that I got a, an email that said, these are the five people that have handed in their resignation letters. It's very interesting when you're in Europe, it's really hard to resign. Um, it's like a long process. Maybe it's changed since then or not, but it wasn't like, Hey, you quit that day or you have two weeks. Like it was a multi step process. And so we had a little bit of time after kind of doing my listening tour. Things that I kind of learned were there was no intentional culture. There was no goals. There was no mission. There was no direction. So uh, 
there was no place that the reps could all kind of rally around to say, this is what we're trying to achieve. It was very much of um, just go get more revenue. Not the greatest thing to kind of rally around. People understand that companies need to get more revenue in order to grow. But as far as like, why this company? Why this team? Like, why this solution? Let's buy into the people. I'm a huge believer that people quit people, not organizations. You could have the worst solution in the world, but if you have an awesome man- manager, they can kind of make it make it pretty awesome. And um, I was really focused. And I talked transparently and from the heart. I said, I can't change what has happened in the past, but I can change what happens in the future. And we had uh, a lot of leadership discussions. We had a lot of you know, company-wide announcements and, and plans and strategies that said, we are going to change this. And we listened to the employees. And I would say like the overarching theme was getting, nobody trusted anybody. And for a while, and, and I, in a short period of time, was I don't demand respect. I don't demand trust. I earn it. And I earn it with my actions and I earn it with what I've done. And that was able to, I guess, a lot of the, the people who had quit, and I'm sure there was other people that, that snuck through on me. But yeah, I vividly remember five people withdrawing their applications specifically because they said, hey, we like where this is going. We're buying into what you're saying. And it changed. And um, I mean, I, I've talked to people since then and say a lot of the things that, that I built when I are, are still there today. But it's it's one of those things where I used to think that I was a customer first kind of kind of person, and I'm not. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to say, but I, I'm an employee first kind of person. And if you take care of your employees, your customers will benefit from it. And if you treat them with respect, like these aren't pawns, these aren't numbers, these aren't widgets, like they got families, they got lives. They're not going to just kill themselves for you just to, because they buy into something and they buy into that vision and that why. And uh, when you actually speak from the heart, people want to be around those types of people. People don't want to be around assholes and who demand things and expect things and tell you what to do and never back it up. And, you know, that type of intentionality, I'm not saying like, we want a fun culture. I'm talking like actual true, like an intentional high integrity, trustful, respectful culture that we are all moving together in the same place to achieve the same vision. People buy into that. Yeah, they do. I've experienced it firsthand in a, you know, in a couple of turnaround environments too. And one thing that's always been helpful is at least from, from my standpoint is when, when the change in culture is kind of preceded by a change in the business, you know, so in your case, you were the new COO. So you're you know, that change in and of itself is is kind of what gets you there. And and because of that, I tend to think that there's people will open up, right? Like if, if I haven't been working working with you or you have I don't feel like you've been part of the problem necessarily. So you can get people to open up. If you're in the CEO role and you just recognize like your gut tells you it's it's not right, but but it's tough to get people to open up to you. Cause I I mean I experienced the same thing when when we do audits, we initially I was surprised at people how much they would just share with me. And I was like, Holy shit, I feel like I'm like a psychologist sometimes. But they they have all this pent up energy and they want they want better for the organization. 
but it's it's easier to to kind of communicate that to an outsider or to somebody that's new is what kind of advice would you give or what recommendations would you make you know a CEO or a sales VP that that senses what it is but they've been there they want to lead change without having to necessarily flip over everything yeah no it's it's interesting i'm actually going through that with a couple of uh, new clients now best way i've ever done it is i let my guard down first i do it both from a inside the company like leader to employee and i do it same way in sales because i think a lot of prospects are kind of have their guard up right they assume they're going to get sold I think the key is the transparency around this isn't right. I think we can all agree there's something wrong here. Like we can all do better. And I think it humanizes you. I think it makes you this person who people can go, all right, like you're not a robot. You're not this machine. You know, I made a lot of mistakes in my my life. I, I work really, really hard. And there's times where I'm going a million miles an hour and I... I'm just plugging the machine and I and I take out the people factor. And all of a sudden, all it takes is somebody on the hey, stop, like slow down, man. Like, what is going on here? You're 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 going so fast that you don't even realize what you're actually doing. And what I started to do was build like schedule time for reflection into my week and into my frankly, my months in the, in the, in the beginning, but now I do it every week is just to look back and go, what's going on. Let me be a little bit more intentional from a people point of view, like what's working, what's not working and really listening to your team. Yeah. You're the, you're the leader. You're supposed to know all the answers. Well, you know what? You don't, you don't know all the answers and it's okay that you don't know all the answers. The goal is to hire a bunch of really, really smart people who can go do the things that the business needs to do and help as a whole educate everybody else and work together to build it. And you can build that type of an organization or you can build an organization that nobody wants to be in and you're the only person that knows how everything works. You can never take a vacation. You got to work a million hours and everybody hates you. And you have to pay everybody just to stay, (laughs) right? I mean, it's just... I don't know. I look at it and go, oh, I was younger, right? I was earlier in my career. Like, I remember the bosses and the things that they did and what I did and did not like. Just don't do that shit. (laughs) Just don't do it. It's not that hard. Like, stop being an asshole. (laughs) Yeah. I remember uh, as you started talking, I remembered one of my first VP of sales. We were in an inside sales environment and you know, there were, there were grumblings There were, you know, it was, wasn't completely dysfunctional, but it was going downhill. And, you know, he said, all right, tomorrow we're meeting up and he rented out the, you know, floor above us. And we're like, you know, it's probably going to be some cheesy team building or something. And we went upstairs and there were these tables out and he said, all right, everybody's pissed. Tell me why let's go. Like, let's, let's chat about it. Like this is, um, you have immunity, absolute immunity. Like nothing is going, I need to understand what is going on. I don't understand it. And like one person spoke up and then another person spoke up and then there was just this flood of criticisms and not one time was he, was he defensive? You know, he, he said, okay, got it. That one I can work with that one. I can't, you know, and it was just a, it was a very transparent conversation. He was completely vulnerable and yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that work. That's um, that's good advice. The thing is it takes the leaders. It has to come from the top. Because if it comes from, you know, if it comes from a manager, it's going to affect a very small portion of the people. 
but all of the other team members and other divisions and other departments are not going to buy into it. Like it has to come from the top. Not everything has to come from the top, but this has to come from the top. And it takes a lot to just kind of put your ego on the shelf because if you're the founder, right, you can, you can get a bruised ego and you can, you know, you're yelling at my company and you're saying how much this sucks and that sucks and blah, blah, blah. But it's also, it's not intentional or, or I should say it's not an attacking personal attack. We're here. We bought in. This is something that I do 50, 60, 70, whatever hours every single week. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Like I'm telling you because I want to actually help. Listen, listen to me. I mean, these people aren't stupid. They say it enough and you don't listen. They're going to go get a job someplace else where they are listened to. Right. It's actually, it's a good segue to my next question that I've seen with several organizations recently, even with this, you know, with, with COVID and everything, the sales organizations are starving for good talent right now. I mean, at least from, from what I've seen from SDR to AE, I mean, all the way through finding really good people. It's always been hard in sales, but it seems because of the remote nature of things now, I mean, there's, you know, in Silicon Valley, I can compete anywhere, you know, in terms of hiring people. If you're building a sales organization and you want to be really competitive and and get the best people besides besides throwing money at it, I mean, obviously that's that's there has to be some money, but what would you do to make your sales organization more competitive for for talent right now? I would learn how to develop employees. <laughs> about as simple as I can get. Most people think that they're going to come into a company, they're going to do their job and they want to get promoted and they want to learn new skills. and They want to believe that what they're doing is impacting the overall business, moving it all forward. I agree. And I think you need to communicate those things very, very appropriately. You have to have all of those things. But most importantly, like you have to develop people. They have to be curious. They have to be motivated. They have to be all of these things that you can look for in attributes, but you need to kind of pour a little fuel on the fire for them. You need to spend time onboarding them. Don't just throw them four PDFs and expect that they're going to figure it out. Don't send them to your top sales rep and say, hey, follow this person for two weeks. This is a time where there are a ton of jobs for AEs and SDRs and just I don't know, if you're in like the, the go-to-market side of the house, you can pretty much get whatever salary you want, like right now. And you're going to have to pick and choose between, you know, different types of offers. And if pay is the same and, you know, rank is the same, same, similar type of position, like you buy into the people, you buy into the culture, you buy into, uh, you know, what's training look like? How do you invest in employees? I talk to my clients, like the actual reps who I work with, and I talk about it and go, your boss, like your leaders, hey, a lot of money for me to come in and invest into you. You should be thrilled. Do you have any idea how many companies don't do this? I'm not talking like giant companies like Verizon or Salesforce or whatever that have massive departments. I'm talking about you know small to medium-sized businesses who... You can invest from the outside in. You can invest with your people and your managers and your leaders. But if you focus on developing talent and you promote from within and you do what you say you're going to do, your employees aren't going anywhere. They're not going to jump ship to the next place. They're not going to be grass and greener on the other side. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to refer their friends. And then if somebody asks, hey, where should I work? Word's going to spread around. I want to go work with those people. 
I want to work for that leader. I want to work for that CEO. That's what you want. I mean, it's no different than customers, but like talk about like, stop trying to convince people to stay after they give their notice and saying, here's another 10 grand. Why do I want to work at a company that I've worked at for however many years? And then I quit and then you give me more money. How about you give me more money? And instead of even more money, invest in me, help me develop skills that I never, never thought about or couldn't attain on my own, or I needed to do better at my job. And maybe you don't need to hire as many people and you can just get the current employees to actually do more because they understand it better. That's the way I would look at it. It's like money, money is obviously mandatory. Like it is a part of, especially in the sales career, like you have to be able to pay your people, but there's a lot more than just money. And I think it focuses on developing and, and that's where I've gotten pretty much everybody to, to kind of buy in. And, and that's why the churn's low. Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good point. The, the development and, and as you've mentioned, even, you know, earlier, the understanding the why, you know, when there's, when there's a mission and there's, you know, there's a purpose and we're rallying behind something, it's always better to be in the boat with a, with a team that you want to want to be part of that makes it harder to leave too, you know, if they're, and then, you know, if they're developing you, one of the things I've thought about is that, you know, sales leadership is, is good or bad at scale. You know, one sales manager has, you know, 10 people, if they, if they suck at their job, that's 10 people that they're affecting, but all the resources, not all, but primarily most of the resources that companies invest are into the 10 less into the one. And that's where you really have a a big impact. And I wanted to ask you from, from your experience, you know, if you're looking at a sales team and, and, and a growing company and you want to identify who's most likely to have some good leadership traits or good, you know, be the next person instead of just making the best salesperson gets the promotion, which we, which we know is, you know, terrible way of going about it. What are the things that you, you would look for, for those, uh, for those skills? You know, sales is just, you know, performance is a piece of it. One of the things I really do is identify doing peer coaching without being told to do peer coaching. I think that's a really big place someone who's kind of mobilizing the team in general around what leadership is saying. So for example, if we're all trying to focus on getting better at cold calls, but nobody's recording calls and no one's analyzing calls, maybe they, maybe they step up and say, Hey guys, let's, let's all record our calls. Let's do this cadence of I'll review yours and you review mine and let's focus on one or two things. So I really focus like seeing if, if that sticks out almost someone who kind of takes on this leadership role without being either asked to or being told to. Um, they just do it because it's kind of up-leveling the team. I also look at it of, you know, who's bringing people along. So when new hires are, are first starting, you know, there's a handful of people that always reach out and actually provide help, provide mentorship, provide some type of roadmap to say, hey, follow this. This is what will help you avoid roadblocks. And so I, I really focus on, you know, not just the performance, but those intangibles and those attributes that that reps are doing inside of the company. I always go, would you rather would you rather take someone who is, you know, a top performer, um, number one? And not, you know, the most social or not, not the, you know, not the, the greatest teammate and promote that versus someone who's an average sales rep, but everyone loves them, knows how to articulate the value, those types of things. I go back and forth. I think a little bit of it has to do with how coachable a, a person is and 
what you have around them. But, you know, there's definitely a case to be made to go hire the person who wasn't the greatest rep in the world, but understands how to do it all. You know, you see a lot of that, you know, in like basketball or football coaches who they weren't the, the star player, but they able to articulate the value the most and rally the team and know what it takes to be that leader. I think that's the key is it's not just I'm the greatest sales rep. Sometimes the best sales rep should stay a sales rep and just kind of crush it for themselves. Management sometimes is not that fun. You got to worry about somebody other than yourself. Yeah, it's a it's a very different role for sure. And I, you know, you said earlier when you early on in your management, you say, I don't understand why you don't understand like that's and I've I've absolutely been there. And it's but it's kind of reflective of how different the management job is from the execution of the sale. and. It seems like the good salespeople, like top third, you know, like when they're when they're good, like you said, they can articulate the value proposition and that have already been demonstrating some leadership on the floor already. I mean, like you said, the you know, out there coaching some peers and helping and, you know, those are all kind of the servant leadership characteristics of somebody even before they're in the role formally. So, yeah, I mean, you could even take on extra projects. Places, you know, doing the right things when nobody's looking, when, when you see a problem, you try to fix it and you go a little bit above and beyond. I'm not saying like redo your role and do a bunch of other things in addition, but if you see that a process between marketing to sales isn't working or sales reps are failing on this specific thing and you're really good at it, like just put it together, like just do it and ask for forgiveness. No one's going to say, oh, that was a horrible idea, Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much for screwing everything up. No, it's like you've done it. You, you know how to do it. You put together something. I feel like I'm talking to myself around marketing materials, but that's a, <laughs> a, a whole other subject around creating <laughs> marketing materials. Like just do it, throw it together. I mean, I, I have a Canva license, just, you know, 12 bucks a month is nothing. But I think it's about going above and beyond and, and helping everybody else because that's really what leadership is about. Like if you can show it, without only being financially incentivized as a leader to do it, now you're showing leadership that you'll do it versus telling them that you will do it. Yep, that's good. So you have, you're a mentor at, if I'm right, six six organizations. Can you tell Depending me- Depending on the time, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a decent amount of time. Can you describe to me what what is that mentorship and when- when would CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs be be in the best position to utilize that kind of help? Can you just give me a little bit of background on that? Yeah, well, uh, different mentoring at different times, so it's not just I'm you know only mentoring for like day in and day out or hour in hour out. But I mean, a lot of it is so. A, a TechStars has a, a cohort or a class for I think it's like twelve or fourteen weeks. So I might be a lead mentor, I might just be a sales mentor, and someone can reach out to me and talk, and we'll talk like best practices. Other places, I'm just there as, as office hours and you can come to me with help. Sometimes I give presentations like I gave last week. So it just kind of depends. I mean, the, the big thing is I went through Techstars at, at kind of the early onset of my career when I just got into entrepreneurship and they have a big give first mentality, which is what David Cohen and the, and the gang made there. And I, I don't know, drank the Kool-Aid if you want to call it, but it really, really makes me avoid all the stupid things that I've done and you see the success and you see the clients and you see the traction and you see the fundraises and you see all of those types of things. It just kind of makes you feel good. So 
I get involved. I try to mentor. I try to give, you know, hours here, hours there. I, sometimes I'm a lead mentor for a, for a cohort. Sometimes I'm just, you know, more reactive and you reach out to me. If you have a, a question, it's usually some kind of sales or go to market or, you know, leadership type thing. But it, yeah, it's, it's not a all day, every day. I'm mentoring companies every single day. I, my wife might, might get a little bit mad about that. <laughs> what would your advice be for somebody that sees the mentoring opportunities? Is there a stage that's usually best? Is it before you get going? I mean, what's been your, your experience? When can you help the most typically? Really, it, it's at all stages. The key is, is there's mentors who know each stage. So are you early stage, mid-market, enterprise, first hiring? Is it founder-led sales converting to your first hires? Are you trying to scale for the first time? Are you hiring you know, managers to run your sales team for the first time? Are you hiring VPs of sales? Like, There are different stages of your company and there are different people who know that specific skill. And you should really seek out the mentors for that thing. When you're early on, there's great mentors that might not be the best people to talk to in three years when you, you know, scale to tens or maybe hundreds of millions. So I think the key is, is to just understand who, who to listen to. Be careful about not asking so many people that you eventually just look for what you want to hear. There's a, a lot of that that goes around. Listen to the people who you believe in, who you trust, who you would listen to about life advice and other types of things. It doesn't have to be everyone and everyone until you hear the answer that you want to hear. Like sometimes like there's advice overload and then you're kind of paralysis by analysis, or analysis by paralysis. So I would say is this find two or three people based on the stage, based on the division, based on kind of what you're trying to do, get some advice and then make a decision. I mean, decisiveness is, is such a, a crucial thing. Like don't, don't take a year to make a decision. Okay. I like that. You mentioned earlier, you have your, your online course. What's the course for? Who's the ideal person for it? Yeah. So the course is called the startup sales playbook. Uh, and it's uh, kind of a combination of everything that needs to go into an initial foundation of a, a sales playbook from identifying your customers and building a, a buyer's process and mapping it to a sales process to negotiation, qualification, that type of thing. If you're a founder, if you're a, a first-time sales anything, I think it's a great starting point. We have a lot of different sales reps and sales leaders who, who buy into it as well. It's good for you know the individual contributor who's in sales, but it's also good for, for who wants to create kind of the, the framework for everybody to buy into a, a single playbook. Um, it gives you a lot of good frameworks and things to, to follow to get everybody on the same page. Okay, cool. And where, where can they find you and where can they find the course? AlexNewman.com with two N's. And it's, uh, you'll see the, the course right there, Startup Sales Playbook. And um, as far as where you can find me, uh, obviously the website and then LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn and post five days a week, starting to get into weekends as well. Um, very active on LinkedIn. That's that's my jam right now. I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have time to go to the all, all the other channels. Monday Clubhouse and some of the other things, but uh, for right now, I'm just LinkedIn. Yeah, I put out a couple of posts. I mean, you and me both, man. LinkedIn is is where I spend the the vast majority of any social media time. And like the clubhouse thing, I I, I got it and I I hopped in and I was like, 
I'm not sure that I understand it. I don't know if that's a function of me <laughs> me getting old or if that's just me being kind of yeah. narrow on LinkedIn, but I, I hear you and I you, you have some really great content on LinkedIn too. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think it's one of those things where um, I'm super disciplined on one. Let me figure out one. And then uh, once I can figure that one out, maybe I'll go to another one. But I don't have rhythm for TikTok and I think I'm too... <laughs> wordy in my, and what I want to say for, for Twitter and could care less about Facebook. So LinkedIn is kind of my jam. Yep. I, uh, I hear you. Well, I really appreciate you, you know, coming by and, and, and your time and, and the, yeah. the feedback here. So I will, uh, we'll send people to your site. Hopefully they pick up the course and, uh, and thanks again for your time, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. This was a lot of fun. You bet. We'll do it again. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. For more information about me or our business, Ray J. Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position, you can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.